Having an underdog brand can sound like a tough position to be in in a dog-eat-dog world. But today's guest says that if you know what you're doing, being an underdog brand has some unique advantages that let you fly under the radar and then crack open markets that the big dogs play in. And when we come back, we're going to find out more. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, the weekly podcast for smart executives, managers, and entrepreneurs looking to improve business performance and their bottom line. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and I've got a terrific guest for you today. He's Mike Sullivan, the CEO of Loomis, the country's leading challenger brand advertising agency, and the co-author of The Voice of the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Thinking Culture First. He also has a free download for you that I'll tell you about towards the end of the program. Of course, I want you to listen to this first, right? Because there's a whole lot more than what he's going to tell you here that is in the download, but it's valuable. So first, let's learn more about the leverage underdog brands have. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Mike. Well, thank you, Hannah. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. You know, I know people like to root for the underdog, you know, an underdog team, the Cinderella teams and so forth. But help us understand what an underdog brand really is. How is it different from the average startup or small business? I mean, what makes it a serious contender? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, your entrepreneurial listeners will, will sort of understand this intuitively. A challenger brand, you know, sort of classically defined is any brand other than the category leader. So there's Coca-Cola and there's everybody else. There's, I guess, American Airlines would be the biggest air carrier in the United States. And of course, there's everyone else. But that's not a real creative way to think about what a challenger brand is. Every following brand is not necessarily a challenger brand. And my co-author, Michael Tuggle, and I talk about the challenger brand ethos in the book. And we like to talk about it. It's sort of constructed of three different things. So number one is definitely state of market. Okay, so we're not number one, but we've got a culture of ambition. Okay, so we're trying to become number one at something, not everything, at something. And that leads to state of mind. So we are trying to be the best at something, or we already are the best at something. So that sort of speaks to a culture of commitment. And then the third thing is what we call a state of readiness. So it's the willingness of the entrepreneur or the leaders inside an organization to really embrace new modes of thinking. And so that's a culture of willingness. And this one's really important. The willingness to zig while others are zagging, to break with category conventions, to, you know, sort of upsell the apple cart, if you will. And those three things, state of market, state of mind, and state of readiness really come together to form sort of the ethos of the challenger brand mindset is what we like to call it. I love the way you broke that down. I think that's really helpful. In your experience, somebody who wants to be, you know, the underdog that sort of like Rocky climbing the stairs at the art museum and, you know, knocks out the the big contender, what do they need to work on the most? Where do people fall short in these three categories and states of mind that you've just described? Yeah, well, I would say, Hannah, that it's really state of readiness. It's just the willingness to embrace new modes of thinking. And let me, let me just say too, I'd love to take all the credit for, you know, kind of thinking up the way challenger brands come to market, but 
anybody listening to this who's really compelled by the whole idea of challenge brands, I'd love you to read my book, definitely. But there's a great book that was published back in, I think it was 1999 by Adam Morgan called Eating the Big Fish. And Adam does a terrific job. Really, it's the best work out there laying out what it is that challenger brands, people who want to take full advantage of sort of a challenger brand mindset need to do, what they need to get their arms around. And and really, it comes down to thinking. It's thinking like a challenger. So we like to tell our clients, look, we're here to outthink, not outspend the competition. We can't just simply replicate the strategies of market leaders. We've got to invent our own. You know, every challenger has got particular circumstances that are unique to them. And it does us no good to go out and try and simply rip off the strategy of a market leader and, and copy that for ourselves. We've got to create strategies that are uniquely ours and, and work for us in the marketplace. So I put it down to, you know, state of readiness and, and the way we're thinking as leaders. If we're talking about, I'd say, the primary impediment to uh, becoming a challenger brand. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I like to just focus on that a little bit more because, you know, it's one thing to do something different. And a challenger brand, the underdog, if you will, the underdog brand, mm -hmm. by definition is smaller, right? And so they're going to have limited resources and they really don't have the bandwidth to be trying a whole bunch of crazy stuff just to be different. So how would you counsel or coach them to be strategic in their state of readiness and willingness to try different things so they can try different things in a smart way so that they don't burn through all of their cash. Right. Well, I'd say the first thing is focus. Focus is your friend. And I think it's very true for entrepreneurial minds. We, we like to think that everybody is going to be the customer for our product or our service. And that's just not true. So get radically focused on who exactly your customer is and radically focused on what it is that you're providing, what, what need you're solving for them. And I, I think I can probably expound on this a little bit by sharing some of my favorite challenger brands, ones that I'm watching right now anyway. There's a little brand called Liquid Death. Have you heard of Liquid Death, Hannah? No, and at my age, I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> and that's exactly the reaction that Liquid Death is trying to provoke. That, that's beautiful. That's exactly what they're trying to provoke. They are a mountain water beverage company. You would never know it from the name, and, and that's sort of the, the whole point of it. So they're a mountain water beverage brand. They've got a really unconventional approach, starting with the name Liquid Death. Well, what's that all about? Well, so instead of selling beauty and peace and tranquility like they're competitors do, Liquid Death sells an aggressive approach to saving the world from plastic. So they sell mountain water in aluminum cans. So their, their taglines, and there are various of them, is murder your thirst, death to plastic. And if you go on their website or you look at their brand, they look like a brand that is absolutely running against the grain of the category. There's not another beverage brand like them that is selling pure mountain water. So again, that goes back to mindset. They thought very differently about the category. They flipped it on its head and they said, hey, what if we cultivate a big following among young consumers and try to create sort of a cult-like following around them? Everything rooted in their brand values. Again, they're celebrating absurdity. They're being bold. They're taking risks and doing things differently. They're leaning into fearlessness and irreverence and that sort of thing. And they are crushing it. I want to say that in the first month, their social numbers exceeded Pepsi's Aquafina on Facebook and I think on Instagram as well. So 
big marketplace success, again, running against the grain and doing something completely different, surprising consumers. So I love that example. And of course, there's plenty of others. I, I love brands like Chick-fil-A and Trader Joe's. And I don't know if you're familiar with Lush. It's a brand you'll find in malls. They're a cosmetics brand uh, that has done just a terrific job disrupting that category. So you look at disruptors and how they show up in a category and what is it that they're doing different? What are they focusing on very precisely? And who are they focusing on? They're not trying to be all things to all people. Just like liquid death wouldn't be a, a beverage that you might pick up at the grocery store. But geez, you know, those teenagers sure love it. Well, it certainly provokes curiosity. You know, is is this the key to euthanasia? I mean, no. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but yeah, I can definitely see why it has that sort of cult-like appeal. Right. You think in terms of niches. You know, uh, very often I think um, when we're, we're thinking about our products or our services, again, we're, we're thinking, gosh, everybody needs this. No, the truth is not everybody needs it. So get very specific about who it is you're serving, you know, and, and what's your specific focus is going to be about. The more laser focused you can get in that respect, the better off you're going to be. Start small, you know, and, and customers will find you, but start small. I like the phrase you used before about radically focused. I think mm -hmm. that's that's just really, that's a fascinating way to phrase it. Now, when it comes to underdog brands, are most of these deliberate or can some of it happen organically? You know, I would say that most of them are deliberate. They may not think of themselves classically as challengers, but certainly it goes back to that mindset. They're definitely understanding that they're doing things very differently. You look at a brand like Chick-fil-A. Did Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, back in the 60s say, hey, I'm going to be a challenger brand. I want to be, I'm going to run against the grain. No, he didn't. What he likely did was he got very clear on his values, his personal values, first and foremost. And then he built a culture around his original store or stores that reflected those values. And you know that that brand is famously polite and nice. They got a super strong culture that emphasizes customer service and hospitality. It's a family-friendly atmosphere that's really positive and respectful. And that was true at Kathy. And so that would have been his vision back in the 60s. And because it has been maintained by the family, it's a family-owned brand, I believe, to this very day. They've continued that to this very day. And if you look at the quick service restaurant category, Chick-fil-A on all of the measures, and there are, there are studies done in the segment that measure things like friendliness of the restaurant chain. They routinely are number one. And I mean, we're, we're talking for decades, they've been number one. And the second place finisher is a full 25 points below them. Well, how do they pull that off? It was interesting. I was listening to a archived radio show with Truett being interviewed by a couple of radio show hosts. And they said, Truett, you know, how is it that you train people to be so polite and to say things like please and thank you? And he said in his slow Southern drawl, he says, well, gentlemen, I don't train people to say please and thank you. I hire people who say please and thank you. And so this is where culture becomes so important for supporting what a brand wants to do. And it's trying to be in the marketplace. Truett Cathy and the people at Chick-fil-A understand who they are, what they represent in the marketplace. And then they go out and they find more people like them and they invite them into their company and then they train them, certainly, to execute in such a way that they are delivering on their brand promises. And that's why we talk about in the book where, you know, it is a mouthful, you know, the title. It's the voice of the underdog, how challenger brands create distinction by thinking culture first. We really believe, that is my, my co-author and I, Michael Tuggle, really believe that culture 
become so critically important for helping brands create distinction. It's when that culture is perfectly aligned with who they say they are in the marketplace that the magic really happens. I'll take a breath here and let you. <laughs> that's a, that's I, a I, lot I to digest. It, it really is. I'm just wondering, you know, big companies, you know, the Coca-Colas of the world, they're always coming out with new products. Is it possible for them to have an underdog brand? Well, I think it's difficult. You know, if you look at Red Bull, for example, who basically single-handedly invented the energy drink category, Coke was very late to that game. I I forget the name of the product that they just introduced maybe a year and a half ago, finally, to try and compete with Red Bull. And they aren't having the success that Red Bull has. Obviously, Red Bull is now the market leader. And this is the thing about challenger brands. They don't start as market leaders, but often they do become market leaders. So I, I think it's possible, Hannah, but I don't I don't see it happen very often in nature. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid from Detroit, so I watch the big three automotive companies uh, stumble along and act like category leaders for many, many, many decades, and it finally caught up to them. And now you see sort of a little evidence of challenger thinking. But honestly, I think that's a real liability for category leaders. And that's one of the reasons that challengers are, are able to succeed. You know, category leaders very often don't take them seriously. They underestimate challengers. And I think, again, it comes back to culture. If you've got the culture of a category leader, that informs your behavior in one way. If you've got the culture of a, an aggressive following brand, well, that informs your, your behavior very differently. Well, when an underdog brand does become a market leader, you know, like, like Red Bull, what do they need to focus on in order to maintain the culture that got them there? Well, that's a great question. So it really comes down to leadership and and staying radically focused on the things that did get you there. You know, what it is that's important to your customers, staying tuned to that, offering new products, new services that are relevant for your customers. But the truth is we see a lot of examples where challenger brands, look at Southwest Airlines, for example, they grow and maybe they grow past or maybe the founder or the original leadership group leaves and things change dramatically. So Herb Kelleher, who founded Southwest Airlines famously in the, in the I think it was the 1970s, put together this killer little regional airline brand and did things very differently from the rest of the airline industry. Well, Herb left in 2004. I think he retired at that point and has since passed on. And the, the CEO who followed him was more focused on the numbers and it dramatically changed the culture. And only a month or so ago, I think it was over the holidays, you saw how that caught up to them. They've got a, apparently a, a scheduling system that's severely antiquated and they've got a culture that's degrading and Southwest Airlines is no longer the darling of the airline industry that it once was. And so that's definitely something that leaders of challenger brands as they mature and grow really need to be watching out for. I think though for smaller entrepreneurs, smaller challenger brands, man, that's just pure opportunity. I mean, look what Tesla did, you know, look what Elon Musk did with Tesla coming out of relative obscurity to really upset the auto industry in a way that is pretty profound. You know, if you think about it, what he was able to do single-handedly, who would have ever thought that there would have been, even been another auto manufacturer in the United States, let alone one that's been as successful as he has been. So again, it, it really comes down to maintaining that culture over time to sustain that kind of success. 
And you definitely don't want to outrun your headlights like like Elon Musk is doing sometimes. Yeah. Or, or become the subject of a Saturday Night Live skits like Southwest has become. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and and that's so with Elon Musk too. I mean, and you can. I mean, guys, he doesn't need my advice, but I mean. Focus is your friend. You know, if you want to build the world's best auto manufacturer, well, just focus on that. He's into a lot of other things and Twitter being the latest of those things. And, and certainly, yeah, I'm sure he's got a plan. But when you get distracted, you know, nothing good happens. Let's just say that. Fair enough. Fair enough. What is it about company culture that you think strengthens underdog brands more than it strengthens a big organization? Have they just lost focus? Well, I think company culture can strengthen big organizations just in a different way. I mean, when you break it down, so what is company culture? I mean, it's it communicates to your employees, to your customers, to your partners, what the organization stands for, you know, and it can really contribute to building a positive image and, and create that emotional connection with them. I think that in smaller companies, very often the leadership team and the leader, you know, whether it's a founder or an entrepreneur, is closer to the action. You know, the team sees that person, they're engaged, and there's a lot of energy that comes with that. And they can use that advantage, and that is an inherent advantage, being smaller and, and more nimble. They can use that to really fortify their culture, to really work, to communicate more clearly and regularly with their team members. I don't know if you're familiar with Kip Tendell, the, the founder of the Container Store. He likes to say communication is leadership. Well, in smaller companies, you've got a great opportunity to communicate all the time, every day. I think in larger organizations, leadership can often become distanced. You know, when do you see the president of a Fortune 500 company? Maybe once a quarter, maybe once a year. I don't know. But in a smaller organization, you have a front row seat to the action. And that can be a tremendous advantage. If you had to boil it down, what would you say the secrets to underdog brand success is? Well, again, I would say it, I, I would say first, not to retread focus, I think that's critically important, but I would say the passion and the energy that these young, small, cagey brands have, that is something that is very difficult to replicate by market leaders. There's an enthusiasm, there's a fire in the belly of these smaller brands that I think is just, it can be really magical. And so I, I just think that I'd, I'd settle in around there is, is my answer to that question. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, before we run out of time, I do want to talk about your book, The Voice of the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Thinking Culture First. I'm just curious, what prompted you to write it? And what do you think the most important message is that you want readers to take from it? Well, the thing that prompted my co-author, Michael Tuggle, and I to write this book was, you know, so often we see companies show up with advertising dollars and they want to sort of spend their way to success without giving a whole lot of thought to what's happening inside the organization. So they almost think about their brand and their culture as being two completely different things. Yeah, I've got a company culture over here. We're doing one thing and I've got a brand over here and I want to promote that. And for us, you know, the most successful clients are the ones who understand that Culture and brand are first cousins. They, they really shouldn't be separated. When you get your culture right, your brand has got a shot at becoming something really special, not just an average brand, but something really special. And again, the book is full of all sorts of examples like that. So really, that's the, the core message of the book. It's, you know, think about your brand and your culture together. You know, we like to say that a brand 
is what people think it's like to do business with you. Well, what it's like to do business with you is very much a reflection of your company culture. Make no mistake about it. So that would be, I think, my my strongest sort of takeaway for, for the book. And certainly it's the reason why we wrote it. And it's full of great examples of how really impressive leaders make that happen every day inside their organizations. Wonderful. And that just ties in so beautifully, too, with what you said earlier about Chick-fil-A and hiring the right people from the get-go that share the values. So, you know, even though people think about sales and marketing as sort of being first cousins, it sounds like human resources and the hiring process needs to muzzle right in there in between them. That's 100% right, Hannah. In fact, we've got a chapter in the book. It says, why HR and marketing should share an office. I mean, absolutely. HR and marketing need to be linked up. No doubt about it. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This has been great. And as I mentioned at the top of the program, Mike has a special gift for you. He's got a free download. It's called Surprising Advantages to Being an Underdog. It's a no-strings-attached download, no email, no password. So come on over to Mike's episode page at businessconfidentialradio.com. And you'll also find out more about his work at Loomis and his book, The Voice of the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Thinking Culture First. That information plus a transcript of this interview can be found in the show notes there. Again, that's businessconfidentialradio.com. So thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to tell your friends about the show and leave a positive review. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode of Business Confidential Now. So until then, have a great day and an even better tomorrow.